Hello, you're listening to the Ambition Podcast. I'm Alan Buckin, Insights and Communication Executive at AMBA and BG. I was delighted to be joined by David Liddell on the podcast, who was recently voted number 12 on the HR Most Influential Thinkers list. David gave us a sneak peek into some of the key themes from his latest book, Transformational Culture. These included the need for HR to be replaced with a people and culture function. He also spoke about the need for a better justice system within organisations. I found this conversation truly fascinating and I hope that you do too. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Um, Can you start us off by telling a little bit about yourself and your career, please? Of course, Alan. Thank you very much for having me. So my name is David Little. I am the chief executive of an organisation called the TCM Group. Um, I set the TCM Group up 20 years ago now uh, to help organisations manage conflicts, disagreements and disputes more, more effectively, primarily through the use of mediation and restorative justice. And then uh, we, we provide training in mediation and restorative justice uh, that then evolved into more management and leadership training, what traditional skills, but we very much focus on those, those tough people skills of communications, managing performance, having those difficult conversations and creating kind of quality inter- interactions between managers and, and employees. And more recently, uh, we've been working in the area of, of culture change and helping organisations develop transformational cultures um, to create a, yeah, a, a more positive, harmonious and healthy workplace for, for, their, for their staff. Prior to that, I uh, ran a charity up in Leicester um, doing uh, doing this work in community disputes, working with uh, various uh, range of disputes with gangs and also in schools and in prisons, promoting restorative justice. And I did an MBA at De Montfort University and I was awarded a distinct distinction in the MBA, um, having studied the use of mediation in two large London boroughs um, and focusing on, focusing on that. So my background is originally in the area of race relations, and that was my first degree was in race relations. So about 30 years I've been working in the, in the area of conflict management, restorative justice, uh, inclusion, um, and more recently, uh, culture change. That's an interesting career. Well, I'd like to ask you, first of all, about your new book, which is called Transformational Culture. Can you tell me more about this book? Absolutely. Thanks, Alan. So this is my second book. My first book was published in 2017, which was called Managing Conflict. And in that book, I set, it was published by Kogan Page and the CIPD. And in that book, I set out an alternative system for organisations to manage conflict in their workplaces. I argued vehemently for the removal of some of the more rigid and corrosive policy frameworks, particularly the grievance procedure and helping organisations, human resources, professionals, leaders, managers, union reps to find better, uh, more constructive and collaborative remedies to to conflict. So the publishers approached me um, back in 2019, uh, saw work I was doing around developing fair, just, inclusive, sustainable and high performance cultures and asked me if I'd be interested in writing a a second book, really expanding some of the themes and topics from from, from managing conflict um, and expanding those into a wider piece around organisational culture and helping organisations create cultures where issues are resolved constructively. There's a culture of fairness um, uh, and justice within the organisation, which is supported by a focus on restorative approaches rather than perhaps the more retributive systems that I was describing in my first, first book. 
So yeah, the, the, the new books um, offers a, a whole systems model for developing a, a, a transformational culture. Um, it focuses on the development of a collaborative hub within the organization, what we call a culture hub, uh, rethinking some of the roles of our, of our traditional functions around leadership, HR and managers. I set out uh, eight enablers, very much centered around putting our values first and focusing on our core purpose, defining the clear behaviours and supporting employees, managers and leaders and others to have really strong, powerful, quality conversations to resolve issues proactively, delivering really positive outcomes, which I describe as the seven C's, uh, focusing on areas such as building common purpose, enhancing communication, creating interconnectedness within the workplace. So offering a whole systems approach for, for culture change. And it's, it's proven to be remarkably popular, Ellen. So I'm very pleased with it. Well, congratulations. Thank you. It sounds so interesting. There's so many things I want to pick up on. Um, so to start us off, your book calls for companies' cultures to be built on fairness, justice, inclusivity, sustainability and high performance. I was wondering which aspect of that you thought was the most difficult for organisations, especially currently. Yeah, I think it's a great question. I mean, those areas are absolutely critical. I think those areas are the areas of organisations which the smart investors, the smart customers and the top talent are really asking now and expecting to see in place in organisations. But in terms of the most difficult, Ellen, that I think for the organisations face is the area of justice. We in our organisations have become so, sorry, the justice models in our organisations are so retributive and so much based on a binary or um, um, a process of finding out winners and losers, who's right, who's wrong creating this sort of defend and attack dynamic in our workplace. And we see those often through many of our management systems, performance management systems, our grievance procedures, disciplinary procedures, uh, and other processes for resolving people issues. They draw heavily from a retributive system of blame, shame, punish, and taking a punitive outcome as a result of, of an alleged wrongdoing. Now, those justice models are, in my in my experience of working with organisations to resolve issues, are insidious, corrosive, destructive, dysfunctional, harmful, negative, and are the antithesis of a compassionate, kind, caring, supported, and indeed a high-performance organisation. So one of the biggest challenges I face working with organisations is they have in place these justice systems which give the appearance of, of justice. They give an, a, a mirage of fairness and an illusion of, of just outcomes. But actually what they're designed to do specifically is to reduce the risk of an adverse outcome in litigation against the employer but from an employee who's out to seek to cause harm to the employer. So they're designed really to protect employers from rogue employees. Of course, the vast majority of employees, as demonstrated through COVID and elsewhere, they're not rogue employees. They're loyal, hardworking. They can be trusted. Yet these corrosive processes, these, these um, one-size-fits-all processes, drawing on this retributive model of justice, they undermine and impair trust in the workplace. They damage relationships between managers and employees. They can damage and irreparably damage the psychological contract that exists in, in the workplace. Those retributive systems create a culture of fear, anxiety, hurt, harm, betrayal. They undermine productivity and performance. Yet they exist unchallenged within our organisations. They sit in the employee handbook screaming to the employees, we don't trust you, we don't trust you, causing harm and distress. And anyone who's been through one of these processes will know 
that the relationship with a colleague or a manager will never be same again. Yeah, we're addicted to these processes and there's an industry that's been built around retributive justice, the management of grievance processes, disciplinary procedures, performance systems. And what happens, I, I think, often in organisations, Alan, is, is we, 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 we subcontract justice using this retributive model to, to managers. We say, managers, you go and deliver justice, but we don't give them the skills, the training that they need to be able to deliver just outcomes. Then when that doesn't work, we subcontract justice to these broken policies and procedures, which, which inflame and worsen relationships. And when they don't work, as invariably they won't, we subcontract to, to lawyers who then, again, seek to protect the organisation from an adverse outcome in the tribunals. So the justice models are broken in our workplaces. And I think one of the biggest challenges is demonstrating to organisations that I move from a retributive model of justice to a restorative model of justice, or what I call transformational justice. It's one of the most profound and powerful shifts in emphasis an organisation leader and an executive can take. Yet it feels like it's probably the biggest risk an organisation can take. So ripping up those old paradigms and orthodoxies of retribution, punitive, sanction-based outcomes in favour of people-centred, person, purpose-led, values-based processes, from my experience and watching organisations do this, is the biggest single change they can make to their organisational culture for many feels like a very significant risk. And that's a challenge that I'm really excited working with organisations on, amongst many others within the development and deployment of those transformational principles that I'm describing. That's so interesting. Just kind of off the cuff, I'm wondering if any of your opinions come from your background working with prisons. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's, it's where I've learned... The, the, the benefits and the, the art, the science and the craft of restorative justice. And I've worked, you know, I, 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 my, my team and I, we, for instance, we ran Royal Mail's bullying and um, industrial relations unit for two years. So you know, what, what, what we didn't learn about managing bullying and conflict in the workplace in the two years with Royal Mail really, really wasn't worth knowing. And what was what occurred to me Adam, was people who were experiencing bullying or, or, or incivility or conflict in the workplace were telling me they, they felt shattered, they felt bruised, they were stressed, they were anxious, um, they couldn't think straight, they couldn't sleep at night. And when I was talking to people who'd been on the receiving end of offending behaviour from an offender, whether it was a low-level offence or indeed a more serious offence you know, to and including victims of families of murder, they were saying exactly the same things to me. And it occurred to me that within our, within our criminal justice system and indeed within our civil justice system, the opportunities for dialogue, for insight, for learning, for growth, for healing are starting to become apparent. They're starting to emerge within our criminal and justice uh, and and criminal and civil justice systems. Yet within the workplace, um, even following a a review of the dispute resolution systems in 2007 by a gentleman called um, Michael Gibbons on behalf of the then Department of Trade and Industry, the opportunities for introducing these restorative approaches were missed. And instead, what we relied on are, are these what I call the GBH policies, the grievance bullying and harassment procedures, which are which which provide very little opportunity, if any, for learning, for insight, for growth, for innovation. And I said to business leaders, I say to business leaders, what what's the success of your business based on? And they say to me, it's it's about the relationships, about the innovation, it's about the creativity, it's about solving the new problems of the 21st century effectively uh, for the future. So I, I show them the, the the procedures that they have deployed in their organisation 
organizations and how they block and harm and undermine creativity and innovation. And then they block and hinder productivity. They damage performance. They damage productivity in a way that it impedes people from being the most brilliant versions of themselves. So what I learned when I was doing my work in restorative justice and, and mediation in, in the 90s in, in, in community space is absolutely informing this. And the reason being, Ellen, it could, is it works. People perhaps rolled their eyes at the idea that two grown adults, human beings, could resolve issues themselves by sitting in a room and having a, a conversation with each other. That sitting face to face and talking and listening and engaging was no way to resolve an issue. And it's the only way to resolve an issue. Going through processes and policies and procedures is it's 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 the least best way to resolve our issue. Yet we rely on them as though they provide a. Uh, an outcome which is going to be effective they don't they don't work um so yes to, to answer your question absolutely those restorative principles from victim offender mediation um and, and elsewhere absolutely informing my practices right now in terms of culture change so in your book you call for hr functions to be the place with a people and culture function what would this look like in practicality yeah, I think it's more than being replaced. I think it's more of an evolution. So the HR function uh, exists in a state of persistent paradox. On the one level, HR are the drivers of engagement, of talent, taking a strategic function within the organisation, using data to be predictive and proactive. Great, fantastic. And on the other level, HR are seen as the police of the organisation. Going to HR is seen as a threat. They're the custodians of policies and procedures, as I've described, which undermine relationships, destroy lives, and cause irreparable harm. And that paradox is an existential threat to the very existence of HR. That paradox means that HR exists persistently in a transactional state, trying to resolve those issues, often badly because it's reliant on a policy set of policy systems and processes which are broken, as I said earlier. And that undermines the ability for HR to be strategic. Well, another aspect of HR is HR ultimately are the custodians of processes which are there to reduce a, a risk of an adverse outcome against the employer. So the HR function is inexorably aligned to the role of management and leaders, and people can see this. And we just have to look at issues around Christmas parties in our political leadership to see that the perception of one rule for them and another rule for us is not acceptable in the modern workplace. We've given our employees voice. We've said to employees, bring your whole self to work. Well, they're challenging the orthodoxies and paradigms and they can see that the HR function with its systems and processes protects leaders and protects managers often from that from poor behaviors whilst crushing others for making mistakes and for failing so the challenge to HR is are we listening to the the voices of the workforce and responding to those so so one of the challenges is for HR to to remove itself as the long arm of management and become a truly independent of objective function within the firm no longer there to protect managers but rather to act as an enabler and facilitator function for managers and leaders to have those quality conversations the language of policy process and procedures replaced the language of facilitation coaching and mentoring that the hr function is deployed proactively to help resolve issues rather than being seen to be the nuclear option where they become the champions of people. The, the term HR business partner should be removed from the lexicon of HR with immediate effect as a matter of extreme urgency. 
HR business partner automatically places HR on the side of the business. And Ellen, surely people are the business. So let's call them people partners and focus on the needs of our people, aligning the people with the purpose and the values of the organization, acting as this fantastic conduit between the culture of the firm and the felt climate within our organizations, where they are able to mediate and manage conflicts and disputes effectively, mobilizing support when it's required um, and uh, helping to, to, to encourage people to find constructive remedies um, and suitable outcomes, using data to predict problems, but doing so in a way where it's joined up and supported with trade unions, with leaders and managers, and rather than simply acting as a as a support to leaders and managers in, in collective conversations, they are, they provide a, a mediating and um, dispute resolution and function to, to establish a new social contract between managers and, and unions based on mutual respect, compassion, collaboration, and predictive and proactive remedies. So whilst the power I've described as an existential threat to HR and many HR departments are rising to that right now today as they redefine their role uh, so too similarly if HR rise to the challenges of the, that, that I'm that I'm setting out it's not just me many others are if they can rise to those challenges the the people function or the people and culture function becomes the most strategically important function in the firm ultimately helping people to be their most brilliant version of themselves and unlocking that creativity innovation and productivity that I was referencing earlier I couldn't agree more. So the book also calls for well-being, engagement and inclusion at organisations to be one single unified discipline classes WEI. Can you tell more about this and why you believe it should be this one unified discipline? Yeah, thank, thank you. Helen. So, I, so I, I cover this in, in, in my text. And so when I was researching my book and from work I've done with many organisations, I see enormous efforts around the areas of well-being, particularly around mental health awareness week and so on and so forth. Then I see other enormous focus on EDI, equality, diversity and inclusion and, and focusing on, on, on that area. And then I see another set of um, initiatives around employee engagement. And I often see these initiatives within our organisations swimming, well, it's like a like a swimming pool with swimmers swimming down their lanes um, hard and fast but ultimately not connecting with each other and when we take a step back and use a systems-based approach we can see the interconnectedness between well-being engagement and inclusion and we start to see the organization and the, and the objective there of creating happier healthier more harmonious workplaces so by combining those efforts around well-being engagement and inclusion and what i mean by the combining of efforts is gathering data and evidence to understand the factors that that that, that, that give rise to the to the change measuring the combined impact of those elements uh, together creating activities operational programs and strategies within the organization to develop well-being and engagement and inclusion by combining them into the people and culture strategy allows the organization to see the total aggregate effect of all of those elements combined and ultimately what the organization is then able to do is to see what is the combined impact of those three elements on organizational performance productivity i think the evidence that i'm seeing and it's increasingly the focus here now is a happier healthier, more harmonious workplace with that alignment around well-being, engagement and inclusion is the key to driving high performance. 
And therefore, I think for organizations who measure this, who manage it, who evaluate it and gather evidence around this space to drive the strategy, I think are likely to be the the successful organizations of the future, whereas those who continue to see the, who don't see the connections, uh, who don't understand the interrelationship between those three elements will, um, well, they won't achieve the potential that I think they they probably could. Why do you think it's taking some organisations such a long time to realise this? I feel like all I see on LinkedIn, blogs, etc. is saying diversity is the way forward, it leads to profits, it leads to um, the company doing so well. Why is it taking so long for organisations to kind of catch up with the bot leadership almost? I think it's a really interesting question. I ask myself a lot on LinkedIn because I think if you look at what's said on LinkedIn and the best practice from people in LinkedIn, our organisations would have the most productive, the highest levels of engagement, the most inclusive, psychologically safe, unbelievable organisations. And I think my experience, and I guess the experience of many others, is, 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 is there's a significant lag between what we're expressing and seeing on LinkedIn and elsewhere and what the reality is of working life for a great many people in, in the workplace, whether it's, you know, fire, and rehire schemes in organisations, you know, damaging and damaging uh, uh, processes in terms of tackling workplace safety and bullying and so on and so forth. The good news, Ellen, is organisations are changing. I mean, when I was researching my book, Transformational Culture, though, one of the questions I kept coming back to was what does good culture look like and what is good? And one of the challenges I found was that the notion of good culture wasn't codified or defined. People talked about different ways of transforming culture and and creating organisational culture, but there's no clear definition or understanding of what good is. And what I've tried to do in Transformational Culture is provide a blueprint of what good might look like. It's not to say this is what good must look like or what good is. And it's certainly not trying to be prescriptive or directive or didactic about this is how it should be. But what I've tried to do is answer the question of what good might look like in your organisation. And that creates a really uh, powerful conversation about what is good and how can we work to that. And I think that's one of the challenges that I've seen in the in the culture change and cultural transformation literature and also with the debates on LinkedIn, everyone can define what the problem is and everyone can see the need for change, but no one's really clear on what can we do to create a good culture. And that's in essence one of the problems I was trying to solve in the book uh, to create a blueprint or a model of what a good organisational culture looks like. I call it the transformational culture model. And again, the response has been incredibly positive from, from increasing number of organisations. Speaking of um, LinkedIn articles, and great segue there, but um, yeah. recently wrote an article for our blog, Ambition, and you introduced the idea of the employee experience equation. And I was wondering if you could explain to our audience a bit more about how this equation works. Absolutely. So, um, so the wellbeing and engagement, uh, sorry, the employee experience in, uh, equations is in the book Transformational Culture. I'll try and describe it um, and, and make and make some sense of it. So, um, at the top of the equation uh, is, is wellbeing, engagement, inclusion. So, WEI. So, the combined efforts of the organisation to drive um, wellbeing, so engagement, and inclusion within within the workplace. That's divided by the impact of the policies, processes, and procedures. So WEU plus plus I divided by 3P 
multiply that by 4H. So the, the three Ps are the policies, processes, and procedures that I've been describing. Multiply that by the efforts of our line managers to drive happier, healthier, more harmonious, and high-performing organizational climates, and that equals the employee experience of the firm. We can take that a level further and start to align employee experience with customer experience. And I'm working with a large uh, global retailer at the moment, taking this equation into the um, from not just the employee value proposition, but into the customer value proposition. But in essence, the combined efforts, a combined efforts, strategic efforts on well-being and engagement inclusion, divided by the net effect of their policies, processes, and procedures, multiplied by the efforts of managers to create a happier, healthier, more harmonious, and high-performance climate. In, a local level that then gives us the overall employee experience and it started as an idea really to try and understand how how can we define what employee experience is what is it we, we all talk about this but what does it actually mean and how do we measure it and that's what I've tried to create there is it's not an algorithm we don't need goodness me we don't need more algorithms in our life but it's a tool which organizations can use to generate a powerful conversation in their organization, looking at how these different strands and different elements coalesce and the relationship between them in order to then focus on employee experience. And for me, what's really at the heart of the equation and really critical is it's people-centered and it's purpose-driven. And therefore, when we're starting to develop strategies and processes around using the employee experience as, the equation as, a, as a baseline, we're starting to build out from a people-centered, purpose-driven, values-based approach rather than an approach of, as I've said earlier, um, as an employee, you're likely to cause us harm. Therefore, we're going to create processes which um, which smother you in complexity, bureaucracy, rigidity. So it's a very different way of thinking about how we structure the culture and talk about culture in our organisations. That's absolutely fascinating. It's been so great talking to you. And I need to say congratulations for being voted number 12 on the HR Most Influential Thinkers list. What does it mean um, in the grand scheme of like the book, etc.? I, mean, I couldn't believe it, Ellen. I've got to be honest with you. So, that from those days of walking the mean streets of, of Leicester, where I were, where I was originally based, trying to to mediate in some really complex disputes, to being uh, identified as one of the, the the top HR most influential thinkers was was such a fantastic accolade and real pinnacle for me, for me in my career. What it meant, though, I think was really important is it meant that restorative justice and alternative dispute resolution, I simply call them resolution and mediation, was now being recognised as a key constituent part of the of the people space. And I've been banging on a lot of doors over my 30 years. A lot of eyes have been rolled, a lot of shoulders have been shrugged, a lot of doors have been closed, a lot of walls have been banged, trying to get the, the, the concept of adult-to-adult -adult dialogue, human and humane systems for resolving issues, promoting a culture of compassion and, and collaborative resolution. I've been trying to, so hard to get that into organisations. And it felt like that door, which was starting to be pushed open, was suddenly kicked open on, 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 on that night. And suddenly it felt that the language that I'd been using, and, and, and many others as well, as well as not, not just me, but many others, but certainly that I've been using, was starting to great, gain credibility and great, gain traction in an environment which, you know, I, didn't, I, I hope I haven't sounded too critical because HR works so hard to create these positive 
working environments. And I don't think necessarily they are self-critical enough to, 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 be, to critically evaluate the systems that they deploy. It's not the HR function per se, it's the systems. And I felt that that award gave me an opportunity to go into the HR department of organizations, into the people function uh, with some authority and credibility to ask some really critical questions about the nature of those management systems and HR processes. So, yeah, I, I'm not gonna, not gonna uh, lie to you, it, it meant an awful lot, Ellen. Well, congratulations again, and thank you for being on the podcast. It's yeah, it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. So uh, yeah, thank, thanks again. Thank you so much to David for being on the podcast, and make sure to check out his new book, Transformational Culture. If you'd like more about leadership, head to www.associationofmbas.com forward slash ambition. And make sure to listen out for the next Ambition podcast released every Wednesday.